welcoming atmosphere goes a really long way for um, students and parents to feel um, welcome and that their language and culture are valued. Um, those are really important values of a community, I think, that come through the school. You're listening to season four of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Today's episode will focus on the intersection between education and refugees. Your guest for this week is Julie Sugarman, a senior analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Your host for today is Nathaniel Lemons. Before we begin our guest interview for this episode, it's critical that we understand the severity of today's issue. The UNHCR reports that four out of nearly seven and a half million school-aged refugees are currently not receiving any form of formal education. Though access to education is considered a basic human right in international law, the dramatic rise in the number of displaced persons over the past decades has created intense overcrowding of existing school-like institutions for refugees. Additionally, discriminatory government actions in places like Bangladesh and Myanmar or the Middle East can restrict aid groups from providing support to locally grown education efforts. For refugees who eventually return to their country of origin or settle permanently in neighboring countries, extended lack of education can lead to anything from lower income as an adult and poorer overall health to increased vulnerability to child labor, sexual exploitation, and forced participation in militant groups. For refugees who are resettled across the world in more stable countries, the path to becoming educated isn't necessarily any easier. Though refugee acceptance caps from the current and previous U.S. administrations are historically low, studies show that the portion of school-aged refugees and refugees who are unaccompanied minors is rising significantly. These children and teenagers commonly face immense hurdles in areas such as learning English, adapting to American culture, and continuing education past the primary and secondary levels. I sat down with senior policy analyst Julie Sugarman to talk about what refugee and immigrant education looks like in the United States, and how schools and state governments are trying to provide better quality of instruction. Here's that conversation. My name is Julie Sugarman. I'm a senior policy analyst for K-12 education at the Migration Policy Institute. Um, Within MPI, um, we have the National Center for Immigrant Integration Policy, and our center works works on education and language access and um, uh, digital equity, you know, all the sorts of things that have to do with what happens with uh, immigrants once they've arrived. Um, My specialty is K-12 education, um, and I work on English learner issues. Okay, awesome. That's perfect for what we're talking about today. Um, Could you just describe how you got to this role? What led you to want to study K-12 education for immigrants? Sure. Um, I've been interested in um, bilingual education and language education for a long time. Um, I was interested actually all the way back in in college um, in basically issues of fairness and um, just the the very interesting phenomenon of there being a language of school and that some kids had the same language of home and school and some didn't. Um, And so that really led me into anthropology and then from anthropology into education. And um, before I came to MPI, I worked at the Center for Applied Linguistics for 15 years, 
and I did a lot of work on bilingual education and um, dual language education programs, and also on program evaluation of a number of different kinds of programs for English learners. Um, so that was a really good grounding for going into the policy world and thinking about how, you know, at, at a slightly higher elevation of, um, you know, how all of the, the policies that states and the federal government set affect students locally. That's, that's really, really interesting because it um, almost mirrors my original professional plan that I had. Um, I started out back in high school doing, I did an extensive research project on um, Spanish dual education in elementary schools um, and actually ran like a semester long um, bilingual education program. Um, and so that's kind of exactly where I wanted to go before I switched into journalism. Um, to oh, nice. see the fact that that path succeeds and can bring about a lot of really impactful research is pretty interesting for me. But now I wanted to just focus a little bit on what exactly education looks like, specifically bilingual education for immigrants. Um, so could you just describe the process of like how most school systems approach educating immigrants? Sure. There's a really huge range of approaches to uh, language education. Um, and and um, I do say language education because the frame for immigrant education in this country really is around language. Um, in other countries, there's more of a, um, a focus, I think, on uh, the, the cultural differences and um, um, cultural orientation and that sort of thing. Uh, and we do that to an extent here, but it really is about um, language education because that's how students are actually identified is uh, not by their ethnic origin or their, um, their, their national origin, by, but by the fact that they qualify as language learners. So all schools identify uh, English language learners when they come into um, a new district. Um, their parents uh, fill out a form saying what languages they speak at home. And if it's a language other than English, the kid will take a, uh, a test to see how, how good their English is. And if they score at a certain level, they're um, identified as an English learner. And then from there, there's a huge range of approaches. It could be bilingual education where the child learns in their native language and English. It could be an English only approach where um, the, for some, especially when um, kids arrive a little bit later on in um, high school or middle school, they might be, have a newcomer program where the um, all of the newcomers uh, are, are grouped together and learn in a um, class that is tailored to their needs you know, depending on grade level and, and um, the philosophy of the district and various other factors. With all of those varying factors and just different approaches, what are some of the common challenges that refugee and immigrant children see when adjusting to these new systems? Uh, I think the, you know, the biggest challenge is just not, not, not knowing the language. Um, you know, this is really what we hear from adult refugees um, is, is that the, the biggest challenges for them, you know, is, is not, not speaking the language and they wish they got more, um, you know, language when they're overseas and waiting to come to the US. Um, and I think it's really the same for the kids. Um, kids do tend to pick up social language pretty quickly, but it can be a really, really long haul to pick up the academic language. Um, and then of course, some 
kids who come have been in school before, have been in Western style schools or, you know, schools that have um, similar norms to American schools. I wouldn't even say Western because the different Western countries, of course, are very different. Um, but others have not, maybe not ever been in, in school and don't really know the norms. And there's a lot of things that um, it's hard for us to think about what those norms are because they're so ingrained in our lives. So um, things that can come as a great surprise are, are sometimes things that we don't think to, to, to tell them about and, um, and, and maybe they don't even know quite what questions to ask. So those cultural differences can be really jarring for some of the, the students who come. Absolutely, I could see, especially um, given how many migrants spend the majority of their childhood in refugee camps now, mm -hmm. I could see mm -hmm. especially where that would be an issue. Um, so just to kind of elaborate on that and the focus of just really adjusting these kids to the norms, um, is there any sort of different way that we approach the hard education and that cultural readjustment? I know you mentioned other countries sort of do that more. I think it happens um, on a, a local level. I think teachers are very attuned to these cultural differences, are very concerned about making sure that students um, are finding out about what, you know, learning the, the cultural norms they need to know. It's, it's just more that that's not sort of the, the general frame um, in the US as much as it is elsewhere. So, um, you know, schools tend to develop their own programs and it's very, you know, sort of a localized thing as opposed to sort of having a national approach to cultural orientation. Um, so I think, you know, most schools that I'm familiar with address this in the orientation period, you know, when a student is um, and, and enrolls in a, in a school, um, there's maybe a handbook that they go through with the, the student to talk about the different things, lunch and guidance counseling and course selection and, and um, all of those things. You were mentioning that it's a local decision. Mm -hmm. um, so do you just kind of have a couple of examples of places that are doing this really, really well, or maybe places that are struggling to keep up with the demands? I know um, I've done a lot of research for other episodes about how traditional areas such as like California, Texas um, may have like stronger systems for refugee mm -hmm. education and migrant education, but we're seeing new areas like Michigan, um, sort of like the Mid-South are gaining more immigrants. So how are these different areas keeping up and adjusting? Yeah, this is a, a, a really important question because I think that there are challenges in places that have been impacted for a long time, but also, you know, and then maybe different challenges for places that are newer to working with immigrants, uh, immigrants and refugees, really. Um, you know, in the places that have been receiving students for a long time, Los Angeles and the, the Bay Area, New York, um, it still can be really challenging, um, especially with um, unaccompanied minors who come from Central America, and you might get a really large number of them coming un basically unexpected and um, needing to, you know, find and uh, hire a couple more teachers and find space and, and all of those things. Um, and so it's really sort of problems of scale um, and finding enough qualified teachers, um, you know, even in a place like New York or LA can, can be really challenging. Um, but you're right that the, um, the newer destinations are ones where 
um, you know, they haven't had a, a long history of working with immigrants and refugees. They might need to be sort of starting from an earlier place with their um, development of programs, with their um, professional development for teachers and helping teachers understand the laws and the, you know, best practices for these students. Um, so it's, uh, you know, can be a very big challenge for them to um, think about, you know, how all of these new systems fit in with their old systems um, to buy new curricula that are really more appropriate for English learners. Um, so there really are quite a lot of moving pieces um, when they develop um, a, a new program for English learners. Yeah, and I'm sure COVID has significantly impacted this. Have you done any research on um, just how this is maybe making it more difficult for immigrants to become adjusted? Yeah, COVID has been an, an incredible challenge and, and something that a lot of us have noted uh, over the last year is that um, it, it hasn't really, there's not a, it's not really new problems. It's really that it's magnified old problems. Um, the fact that a lot of our English learners, uh, you know, English learning refugee immigrants populations overlap a lot with um, poor populations. And so there's the problems that all of our, um, you know, uh, the poor um, populations or st students in poverty are feeling in terms of not having access to computers and um, uh, you know difficulties older students having to work um, and not having time for for school but there's also a lot of sort of unique problems with communication um, this was especially something at the you know the beginning of the pandemic that we saw that there was a real breakdown in communication. Um, between schools and immigrant families. Um, and, you know, you can understand, especially in a district that has, um, you know, 50 or 100 languages to translate into, and they want to get a message out really quickly, um, you know, the, the, you can see why they might just put it out in English and try to figure everybody else out later. But that really caused a lot of problems when immigrant families were not getting information. And in those cases, um, community-based organizations really stepped up and provided a lot of translation services and um, helped um, direct people to different um, new ways of, of translating and um, using the language line, using automated systems to, um, to help with translation. So um, yeah, the language access issue for parents has been a, a, real, um, a real challenge. Um, and I think the other um, big challenge with COVID is that a lot of the computer uh, the computer-based uh, resources that teachers were using are really not appropriate for English learners. Um, some of them may not be so great for everybody else, but um, you know they just weren't designed um, with English learners in mind and, and with needing to sort of really quickly move into a totally different way of educating. I think teachers gravitated to things that were pre-existing that they could get off the shelf and just start using. And um, most of those products just aren't appropriate. And teachers didn't have the training on how to do online learning with uh, English learners and how to adapt the strategies that they use in the classroom, which often are very personal and one-on-one -on -one into a, you know, a, a, um, a situation where they're working with students remotely. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think a lot of schools have done an incredible job of coming up with totally new ways of teaching and, and teaching English learners specifically. But um, yeah, it's been a really, really hard process. And, and I'm sure um, there's still areas where it's just not, it's just not adequate at all. 
Yeah, um, I can speak from personal experience a bit. My mother is a high school teacher um, in rural North Carolina. Oh. Um, we have a lot, a lot of um, Hispanic immigrants from mm -hmm. Mexico and Central America have come in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and I know she really struggled, the whole school really struggled with trying to inform parents and contact yeah. individuals, make sure everybody was understanding like the expectations for the COVID semester. And so, yeah, I can really see how um, it wasn't really sort of new problems necessarily, but an exacerbation and complication yeah. of communication issues that already existed. Um, yeah. And one really interesting point that you um, touched upon at the beginning of that answer, I think was um, helping teachers understand like laws and expectations for them in terms of educating um, English learners. So could you just kind of give an overview? Do a lot of teachers know like what's expected of them um, on a broader basis? How is that communication between local, national and state guidelines? What does that look like? Yeah, I think this is another area where some states with longer histories really do have, have a more, um, you know, systematized way of um, helping new teachers understand these laws. And, um, you know, a lot of states are really still struggling with it. Um, although that's not to say that New York and California always get it right either. But um, the, the main things for teachers and, and other staff who work in schools to understand um, first is the right of students to attend, and, and this really applies less to the, the refugee population which have, who have status, uh, legal status in this country, but the unauthorized population um, or students who, were, who are citizens but whose parents are unauthorized. Um, and there really is a lot of um, mis misconceptions about um, the, the right of students to attend, and more importantly, the um, specific guidelines around not asking students about their immigration status um, and um, things that the Department of Education has laid out in terms of you're not allowed to require a social security number, you're not allowed to ask about parents or kids citizenship status or ask for their visas or ask about um, you know, how long uh, what you can ask um, about, you know, basic issues of where the child was born, um, some of those things. Um, yeah, it's, you know, and, and a lot of that really goes to the front office staff, you know, the people it's, it's, you know, teachers may know this, but all, the front office staff may not be as up on, on the issues and a student may come in and they may say, oh, are you a citizen? Oh, I don't think you can come to this school. And then, you know, that's really discouraging and they go away and they never come back. Um, so um, having an entire school really understand the laws and the requirements and the importance of a welcoming atmosphere is, is really critical. Um, and then once students are enrolled, there are also laws and guidelines around access to the curriculum. Um, and students um, are, uh, you know, due, uh, due to civil rights laws, students are um, required to be given access to the English learners um, are, are required to be given access to the same learning as their peers. Um, so you can't give a lesser education to English learners than to other students. Um, you know, and what exactly that looks like differs. Um, so I looked into a little bit the fact that there are unique challenges for young children when mm -hmm. they come as opposed to maybe like teenagers um, and just how 
the environment that they were raised in before they came to the U.S. can impact how they experience the U.S. Um, so did you have any insights on that and just sort of how policymakers are approaching that issue? I think for younger students, um, you know, who, kids who arrive in the elementary school years, they they really pick up very quickly on, on U.S. norms. And sometimes the issue there can be with relationships with their parents because their parents uh, continue to expect certain behaviors and norms and values. And the kids are really very much influenced by the way that their peers think. So, um, well, I mean, really that can happen with uh, with older kids too. They also um, come in and, and um, learn, you know, what it's like to be a teenager here and, and start acting in like, you know, American teenagers. And sometimes their parents can be very shocked by that. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, I, I think there is a, a push and pull and I think there is a concerted effort um, with people that are um, working with refugees to help refugee parents understand those, those differences. I think that um, one of the biggest challenges for districts and schools is working with older refugee students and older immigrants who come in at the uh, high school level, but are not at the high school level in their native language. And so those schools need to think about how they're going to bring those students up to speed in all of the basic skills of literacy and math and, um, you know, the things that other students, you know, learned in elementary and middle school, and also to be pushing them along along on a pathway towards college and career because those students have don't have a lot of time in the K-12 system. Eventually they will age out and they will be um, having to go into work in, into workplaces, into the community college system. Um, and so that's been a really big challenge for high schools to um, think about how to um, create a um, a curriculum, create a pathway for older newcomer students and especially those who come in with limited uh, or interrupted schooling in their native language. Absolutely. Um, and then one sort of like final direction I wanted to shift into is what this effort to improve migrant and immigrant refugee or education looks like um, on an institutional level. So how are sort of government actors informed about this, curriculum developers, what did, what did their issues look like in terms of developing this curriculum? So it, it's very interesting um, to see the interplay between federal and state when it comes to education because education is really a state issue. And so most of the key policies are set at the state level but they are often influenced by the overarching federal guidelines. So for example, the, um, the civil rights laws that require access to the same education for English learners as for other students. So um, the federal government is really concerned mostly with equity, with ensuring access and civil rights, um, with um, some additional funding for various student groups that um, are traditionally underserved. But then really all of that goes sort of to the state and then to the districts um, and is, is enacted on a local level. Um, states are, are variable in terms of how much they, um, how, how 
specifically, they um, lay out exactly what schools should do in terms of the curriculum. Usually states just set standards, which are, you know, the things that um, students should be able to do in each grade. And then um, localities will develop curricula in order to um, uh, meet those standards. But there are some states that have a little bit of a heavier hand in terms of providing curriculum materials and approving um, particular textbooks or, um, you know, saying what kinds of things need to be taught in accordance with the, the standards. So that, that really varies. Um, I think another thing that um, the that legislatures and, and state uh, education um, agencies are really concerned with is teacher preparation. Um, states set the um, rules for what teachers need to know in order to get certification and what kinds of alternative certifications exist, what alternative routes teachers can take. And so that really is an important piece of uh, the, the kind of education that students get at a local level, because it's, um, you know, how much is our, our student, our student teachers required to learn about English learners, um, how much is infused throughout the curriculum, um, you know, how there are even states that don't have a certification for ESL. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's a really, really wide range of approaches in terms of curriculum um, and, well, in terms of uh, teacher preparation and then um, in terms of what kinds of teachers, um, teacher um, certifications are required to work with English learners. Um, so all of those policies are really critical to the quality of education for English learners. And so based on your research and just what you've seen throughout your career, what is the ideal um, sort of structure and approach to making sure that migrants and refugees feel accommodated in their schools and actually mm -hmm. succeed in their studies? Well, we know that really well-implemented bilingual dual language programs are um, more successful uh, in helping students develop high levels of English, levels of academic achievement than English-only programs. But they're um, difficult to implement. They uh, require very specialized uh, teacher training, um, which isn't something that you know every every district can take on. And of course, you need the right population. You need an, a, a group of you know students that all speak the same language. So it's not gonna be an approach that we can take everywhere, but we can do things to really encourage students to maintain their native language at home, to um, draw on their native language resources when they're working in English in the classroom. Um, I think uh, a welcoming atmosphere goes a really long way for um, students and parents to feel um, welcome and that their language and culture are valued. Um, those are really important values of a community, I think, that come through the school. I think we also really need to maintain a focus on equity and looking at outcomes for students because, um, you know, despite all of these years of knowing what the best practices are, it's clear that schools, a lot of schools still aren't implementing them because students are just not um, getting, uh, developing English in, in at the, the rate that we expect, which is, you know, most students um, can exit out of a program after five to seven years, if, you know, obviously, if they've come early enough to still be in school. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to really um, pay attention to 
good um, indicators like the, um, the English language proficiency indicators that we have now through federal um, accountability standards, um, looking at how quickly students are making progress. Again, you know, speed isn't the, the only thing, but if students are staying in English learner programs for, you know, eight, 10, even their entire 13 year career in K-12, that's really a problem. We wanna look at what's happening in schools that they're not getting students um, up to the level of English that they need. Um, so yeah, there's really a lot of challenges, <laughs> um, but I think there's just been a, a really terrific focus on English learner issues um, over the past few years. And it's, it's really um, become a lot more of a priority in, in more places than just the, the traditional school districts that have served these students for a long time. Absolutely. Um, and then just one last question. Um, with all of these challenges and changes and new programs, what do you see as the future of refugee education, especially given that more individuals might start coming, um, more areas in the world might start experiencing things that will send people our way? Just sort of what is the next step? Um, I mean, the, the trend has certainly been for um, immigrants to be spreading out into more communities, um, you know, into the suburban areas, um, as opposed to inner cities and um, into new states. And I think that this really goes to the idea that all of our teachers need to be prepared to teach these students. And, and I think there's been a movement to um, think about it that way, that it's not uh, that, you know, oh, these kids are the ESL teachers problem, but they're, um, they belong to all of the teachers and the staff in the school. And I think that there's been a lot of schools that have been working really hard to instill that sense in their staff and also to help their staff understand their role um, you know, obviously there's still going to be a role for an English learner specialist, but that person may be more of a mentor or a coach to other teachers as opposed to being the person that provides the direct instruction. Um, because we just really need all of our teachers to understand how to work with English learner students um, and to provide language education and um, access to academic instruction because um, we just won't we just couldn't possibly do it with just English learner specialists. As Dr. Sugarman just explained, refugee and immigrant education is a complicated issue, even in places like the United States where we have a very established education system. For places that are currently experiencing major conflict, this can be an even bigger problem. Low levels of education can lead to cycles of poverty and even prevent entire people groups from succeeding on community and international scales. As with all of the concepts we are discussing this season, refugee education also has an impact on all other areas of a refugee's life. The UNHCR website features many other articles about this topic if you'd like to learn more. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refugee Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.